thank you for worshiping with us. It is a joy to get to be here in a building with so many uh, covered faces, and it's a joy to get to share the word of God with you and with everybody watching online right now. Thank you for coming to the Glendale Christian Church in person or in line, online. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the a lead minister here at GCC, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend your Sunday morning praising God and about to participate in our Snapshots series. This sermon series called Snapshots is designed to encourage, to uplift, to bring together, and to build the knowledge of God Almighty in our lives. It's been fun so far, and it is my prayer that this morning you will be uplifted again by God's word and his call to us. The snapshot for this morning is actually a twofer. There are two pictures I want to show you. They go hand in hand. The first is the 3,000 flags, and the next is a uh, different angle of the same 3,000 flags in Westerville, Ohio. This town in Ohio, for 13 consecutive years now, has placed 3,000 flags in one of their city parks every Memorial Day. The reason for this is obvious. Memorial Day is the day we are supposed to remember. And the reason that I picked these two pictures in particular for our snapshot should become clear as we progress through the morning. But I wanted you to think about the American flag and seeing 3,000 of them. It's hard to tell, but there's actually a lady standing in the middle of all those flags, and they're taller than she is. It's an amazing park through which you can walk and pray and think and reflect. And it's very important to do that on Memorial Day, for we are remembering those who have given their lives in service of this great nation. But I thought, you know, the church is in the business of remembering those who have given their lives all the time, not just on Memorial Day. I love Memorial Day, and I love Independence Day, and I love these United States of America, but this morning is not about the United States of America. This morning is about a different nation and a different concept. But the same thing holds true when you look at an American flag today as I want you to do in regards to this other nation and this other concept. Seeing the American flag should evoke three primary responses. The first is to commemorate. The second is to celebrate. And the third is to anticipate. To commemorate is to remember with solemnity, to be solemn in our remembrance of something grand. And when we look at the flag of the United States of America, we are compelled to remember its founding and those who gave their lives for the birth of a nation. But the flag is also designed to celebrate. To celebrate is to ponder and glory in all the things that are current. We think about these United States of America and being the envy of the world in many regards. More people seek to come into the United States than to any other place because we have something special. We have a tradition of seeking to help people experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the country has grown and developed and gotten better and better at this throughout the time. But we look at the flag and we celebrate how good things are. 
But we look at the flag and we also anticipate. Anticipate, to anticipate is to think about the future in regard to ourselves and what may or may not come to be. We anticipate how things can become even better. In these United States of America, as citizens, we get to vote and participate in trying to make things better. This is a big responsibility. And we get to think about how things could be for our children and our grandchildren and the next generations, and we anticipate things getting even better. These three concepts, to commemorate, to celebrate, and to anticipate, are also three things that we do every single Sunday in church. We commemorate. We just celebrated communion, and communion is done in the remembrance of Jesus. But we also celebrate the freedom that we have in the Holy Spirit to keep in step with him and to collaborate with him as we grow in our own personal devotion and Christlikeness. And yet we also anticipate, we also anticipate the return of Lord Jesus. And when he comes, the resurrection body that is ours will finally come to be. We do all of these things, and yet when we think of the American flag, we think of the birth of a nation. But today what I want you to do is not think just about the birth of our nation. Instead, I would rather you think about the birth of a different nation, the birth of the Israelite nation. Oh, you remember, according to scripture, that after the patriarchs and after God had spoken to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph had done his work, then the Israelites suffered 400 years of slavery in the hands of the Egyptians. And finally, God was able to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage by saddling up his servant Moses and saying, you must go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they may worship. And you remember the story of power displayed in the book of Exodus as God flexes his divine muscles and shows that all the gods of the Egyptian pantheon are weak and pathetic and in fact pale in comparison to the only one true God in all the universe. And after delivering his people from bondage and the chasing horde of the Egyptian nation, taking them through the Red Sea, the Israelites find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea, seemingly victorious and yet not quite possessing the land that they have been promised. Yet, instead, God says, celebrate here near this holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And the people do. But this mountain is so holy for God's presence is on this mountain that only Moses can go near the mountain. He was the only one to approach Mount Sinai. And in fact, in the book of Exodus chapter 19, it's recorded that Moses went to God on Mount Sinai and the Lord called from the mountain to Moses and said, this is what you are to tell the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and my holy nation." 
These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back down the mountain and he summoned all the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought this answer back to Mount Sinai and the Lord. And as he ascended the mountain again, God, in Exodus chapter 20, declared to him the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus 21 and 22 and 23, God was able to explain the rest of the law, which would be the charting founding document of the nation of Israel. And then God sent Moses back down. And in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, Moses returns to the people and brings all of the Lord's words and they respond as a nation with one voice saying, everything the Lord has said, we will do. For Moses had written down everything the Lord said and he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And again, the people shouted, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And then Moses took some blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made in accordance with all these words. And then back up the mountain, Moses went for 40 days and for 40 nights, where God himself inscribed the 10 words, the 10 commandments, on the tablets of stone. But in Exodus chapter 32, during the end of this 40 days and 40 nights, the people saw that Moses had been gone a long time. And so they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us since this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. How soon the people turn to sin when they don't remember. How soon we turn to sin when we fail to remember. Like four times the entire nation has said, we will do everything the Lord commands. We'll do everything the Lord desires. We will obey. And he has very specifically said, including the Ten Commandments, he's writing them down now, but the people had heard them and the law, the specific prohibition against idolatry and worshiping other gods. And Moses has gone for 40 days and they say, Moses is gone. Aaron, quick, make us some gods to worship. And Aaron says, give me all your gold. Give me your earrings. And he forges in the fire together a golden calf. And he declares to the people, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Well, God is not blind. God, in fact, informs Moses of this spiritual betrayal and the wrath of God boils up, threatening to destroy the entire nation that has just been started and is about to be started. But instead, God relents his anger and he sends Moses back down the mountain. And on his way, Moses bumps into Joshua and Joshua says, it sounds like war. What's going on down there? And Moses said, it's not war, Joshua. It's singing and revelry. For the people have already forgotten. And so, in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 25 through 29, Moses 
saw that the people were running wild and Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man must strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Yes, it was a tragedy. Yes, about 3,000 people were cut down, and yet it could have been much worse. God was ready to destroy all the people and start over with Moses, but he relented in that anger and instead recognized that a set-apart group who can cut out certain sin is the way that he would operate. And Jesus knew full well this form of operation. Jesus knew full well. In fact, the nation of Israel is the nation to which Jesus is born, the second person of the Trinity. The Logos, the divine eternal Son of God, takes on human flesh and becomes Emmanuel, God with us. And he's born a Jew to the nation of Israel, and he grows up understanding the stories, having heard them now from a human perspective, having authored them from his previous divine perspective. And now the divine Son of God, clothed in human flesh, experiences it from a different point of view. And Jesus, in fact, understands very well the process of cutting things out and setting things aside. In fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, the Lord says these words, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will become the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Even though Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, the peace that he brings is not to bring peace to the earth so that everybody can get along. No, Jesus brings a sword of division because Jesus understands full well that certain things have to be set apart. Certain things have to be set apart from everything else so that the difference is clear and certain things have to be cut out. And he explains that the cost of discipleship is high. If you love your children more than God, you're not worthy of him. If you love your parents more than the Lord, you're not worthy of him. If you are not willing to take up your cross daily and follow him, you're not worthy of him. And what does it mean to take up his cross daily? It means to wear the cross of death. You have to put to death daily your sinful desires. We must all wake up every day and make the decision. Will we commemorate what God has done 
And will we celebrate his freedom by killing our sinful nature again and again and again, telling God, not our will, but your will be done, and placing his desires in higher priority than our own? Jesus understands some things have to be set apart. And we set ourselves apart from this world when we take up the cross. When we take up the cross and serve as his disciples, we're letting the world know that we are not like the world. We step out from behind the way the world lives and we do it differently. Oh, if the world tells us that certain things should go a certain way, we say, not unless God says so. The ways of the world are not always the ways of God and being set apart is how the nation of Israel was born. You will be my special holy nation. You will have my law. You will know what is right. You will know what is wrong and you will be set apart. And then the Lord himself comes and he says, you must be set apart. You must come after me and follow after me. And my way is very different from the ways of the world. Yes, the nation of Israel had to commemorate. They had to commemorate because there's a rich connection between the birth of the nation of Israel and something else that started shortly after the Lord said those words. In fact, we recognize full well that when it comes to the birth of the nation of Israel, this particular verse stands out, Exodus 32, 28. The Levites did as Moses commanded that day, and about 3,000 of the people died. Now, this verse, if you are well acquainted with Scripture, should automatically be sending up certain warnings. And you should hear the phrase, about 3,000 died that day, and immediately you should be thinking about another passage of Scripture that mentions the death of about 3,000 on a day. That day is Pentecost. For after the Lord said these words about him not coming to bring peace to the world, but a sword, he means that in terms of the sword of division and setting apart. Of course, Jesus brings peace between God and man. He is the agent of reconciliation. Of course, he brings peace, but he is not here to bring peace between this group and this group unless they have peace with God. For when men have peace with God, the peace they can have with one another is accelerated and glorious and profound. And that's why the church universal is the most amazing example of humans coming together because we are not coming together on our own, but rather we're coming together under the divine power of God Almighty, which is why men and women and people from every tribe and nation come together and praise God. They commemorate, they celebrate, and they anticipate. About 3,000 died on the day that Moses commanded the Levites, drawing a line in the sand and saying, who is ever with the Lord, come over here, and telling them to cut down brother and father and son. Jesus understands this. He knows that things will be divided, and he knows that things will be divisive. And in fact, the same people who on Monday of the Passion Week were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, by the time Thursday rolled around, we're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus was crucified. And hanging on the cross, as the Lord shouted, tell us die, it is finished. 
His earthly ministry had come to a close. And he died on the cross for our sins, for our sake, so that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and the imperfect sinfulness of you and me could be traded. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel explains the cosmic trade that takes place. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we who live in sin could be clothed with his perfect righteousness. This is the good news. And as Jesus died and cried out and gave up his spirit, the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead three days later for our justification, vindicating the sacrifice that Jesus had made. And the gospel message was complete. And all who place their faith in this message, who believe and trust and lovingly obey the Lord, are saved. And after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people and he told his disciples, you must be my witnesses. You must go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and I'll be with you always. And the very last thing he said in Acts chapter one to the disciples was stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. And then once you receive power, you will become my witnesses first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. And so, having ascended to heaven, the disciples wait. The disciples wait. And now, 50 days after Passover, Pentecost rolls around. And all of a sudden, the sound of a violent rushing wind sweeps through the home in which the disciples were gathered and tongues of fire came down and descended upon each of the apostles and they began to speak in languages that were not their own. And the book of Acts chapter two records that as they went out and they proclaimed the message to the people, Peter said words like these. Peter said, people of Israel, my fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth is a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. And Peter continued, fellow Israelites, I can confidently tell you that the patriarch David has died and was buried and his tomb is right over here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place on his throne one of his descendants. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor would his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. And then, in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what must we do to be saved? What shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. About 3,000 died at the formation of the nation of Israel and about 3,000 died spiritually at the formation of the church. God understands that sometimes death is an important part of birth, birthing something new. And just as the Levites cut down about 3,000 Israelites so that the nation of Israel could get the traction it needed to move forward as God's holy and chosen nation, so too as God established the church about 3,000. And you should be drawing the connections instantly between God's plan of the nation of Israel and God's plan of the church coming together. And as he worked in one, so he works in the other. It should be coming together in your mind. And the parallels should be obvious. The first parallel that we see is that sin was unrestrained. In both Exodus 32 at the beginning of the nation of Israel and in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the church, Moses said that sin was running wild, that the people were out of control. And in fact, just 40 days after pledging fidelity to God Almighty, they turn around and they make a golden calf and indulge in idolatry? They failed to remember. And therefore, because of their failure to commemorate, they celebrated the wrong thing. Rather than celebrating God Almighty, they celebrated a graven image. And rather than anticipating the glory to come, which would be the holy promised land to them, they had to anticipate 40 years in the desert. When we fail to commiserate, or commemorate rather, we run right back to sin. And so too what happened in the time of the New Testament. You, with the help of wicked men, crucified him. And the same folks that were so excited to see Jesus ride in on the donkey and were throwing palm branches down, Hosanna in the highest, are the same ones who just a few days later shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Even when Pilate said, I'll give you this scoundrel or this Lord of yours. Who do you want to be freed, Barabbas or Jesus? The people said, give us Barabbas. For he at least was a man of action. He at least was a man who would fight against Rome. And Jesus has allowed himself to be captured and he's about to be killed. We'll hitch our wagons to a different horse, thanks. Sin was unrestrained at the beginning of the church and at the beginning of the nation. But there were also parallels involving people being set apart. In Exodus 32, Moses says, whoever is for the Lord, he draws a literal line in the sand, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And after having come, the Levites are set apart. You have been set apart for the Lord. And did you know that every single priest in the nation of Israel was a Levite? 
In order to be a priest in the nation of Israel, you had to be a Levite because they were the ones who followed the call. They were the ones who were set apart. And so every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite had to become a priest. You could do something else. But if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. Well, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, Peter cries out, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Set yourself apart. Don't be lumped in with all those around you who keep living the same sinful way. Be different. Be set apart. But the parallels between the birth of the nation and the birth of the church run even deeper than this. The people were cut to the heart. In Exodus 32, swords were used to cut down and kill sinners. In Acts chapter 2, the sword of the Spirit was used to convict sinners. Better to be convicted by the sword of the Spirit than cut down by the sword of man. For when the sword of the Spirit pierces us, convicts us, it is sharper than a double-edged sword after all. It divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It pierces and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And they were cut to the heart when they heard the truth from the words of God and they needed to act and part of that action was life but it was out of death it was out of death in Exodus 32 we see the start of the Mosaic Covenant and the blood of the people the Mosaic Covenant starts and for the next hundreds and hundreds of years the Mosaic Covenant will stay intact and remember how Moses even said this is the blood of the covenant so too, years later, Jesus would say, this is the blood of the covenant as he celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples the night before he died. This is the new covenant. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant and it no longer falls to the blood of people. Instead, the Holy Spirit has arrived. The church has been born and it has been born by the blood of Christ. In the book of Acts, Chapter 20, it tells us that the church of Christ was bought by Christ's own blood. It's the blood of Christ that causes life. It was his death and our gain. And so we look at these similarities and we see it all started by noticing a connection of words. About 3,000. Exodus 32 verse 28 and Acts 2 verse 41. You put them side by side. The Levites did as Moses commanded that day and about 3,000 people died. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. About 3,000 died literally and about 3,000 died to sin and were baptized into death to be born again. This is, in fact, exactly what Scripture tells us. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that, it should no, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Oh, there was death. There was death. About 3,000 died that day and about 3,000 died spiritually that day. 
3,000 people had to literally die as, at the birth of the nation of Israel. And about 3,000 people died spiritually to their own sinfulness and accepted the Lord Jesus that day at the beginning of the church. This is what the Word of God tells us. And this should remind us what we must do what we must do to make sure that we don't make the mistakes of the nation of Israel as it was getting started. They failed to commemorate and therefore they celebrated poorly and they anticipated the wrong thing. And we must make sure that we don't make the mistakes of the people living in the time of Christ who failed to remember what Jesus had done and then celebrated the wrong thing and then anticipated something totally off the mark. Instead, we have objectives. And our objectives this week are to do those three action verbs. Commemorate, celebrate, anticipate. I want you to commemorate Christ's death and yours. I want you to share the gospel this week. Recall your devotion and carry your cross by dying daily to sin. Commemorate Christ's death and your own. Share with somebody the good news of Christ's death. Explain to them, Jesus died I remember how Jesus died, and I remember how I died. I still remember the day that I went into the waters of baptism at the Forum Boulevard Christian Church in February of 1999. And I bet you remember the day you were plunged into the waters of baptism also. Share your story as you share God's gospel, for people like it when you put the personal hook on the divine message. Commemorate Christ's death and yours. But don't forget, you didn't die just once. Oh, you died in the watery grave and burst forth to resurrected life. But you have to kill yourself every single day. For every single day, the sinful nature cries out to live and thrive. And you must put it down daily. But we must also celebrate. We must celebrate the spiritual freedom and life that's ours in Christ. We must keep in step with the Holy Spirit and enjoy our freedom and use it to bring glory to God. The Bible tells us that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do it to the glory of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to indulge in your freedom, but not to sin. I want you to indulge in your freedom to voluntarily wear the mask that the city tells us to wear. I want you to use your freedom to do just that. But more importantly, I want you to use your spiritual freedom, not to sin, but to live a life that is so fun and exciting that people see you and want to live like you. I want you to go and I want you to get extra queso when you go to lunch today. Not just salsa and chips. Bring the queso also. I want you to order dessert. Don't eat too much dessert, but have a cinnamon roll. Have some ice cream. Live life and let people know that you're having fun. Because did you know that the Bible tells us we are not those who are slaves to the laws of do not taste, do not touch, do not do this. These things are destined to burn. But we are not destined to burn. Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin, so therefore let us live life to the full. Do fun things. Invite people over to a party. Go to a party. Watch a great movie. Read a great book and share that with somebody else. Do stuff that is fun and don't let the world look at us and say, oh, Christians, their whole thing is don't do this and don't do that and don't have fun and I don't want to be part of it. Live and celebrate your freedom in such a way that people look at you and they say, wow, those guys do a lot of great stuff. They, they have so much fun. Maybe I could be like that. They can be. 
But how will they know they can be if you never are? Celebrate your freedom and anticipate Anticipate our resurrection bodies. Anticipate by living with one eye towards heaven. Oh, you've got to live with one eye towards here. If you eat dessert every single meal, every single day, you will experience God's presence sooner than I will because you'll keep getting older and you'll keep getting fatter and you'll keep getting sicker. And and, and this body has enough problems as it is. Live with one eye towards heaven and one eye towards your current life. You've got to exercise. You've got to eat right. You've got to do different things. But that doesn't stop you from having fun. Have fun in those things, but recognize you don't live for this world. You don't live for this world. This world is not my home. As much as I fight for and care for things in this world, I am playing the long game, and I am not living for this world. I anticipate my resurrection body, and I want to invite as many people as I can into the kingdom of God. I want to anticipate the king's return. Perhaps today the king will return. And when he does, he will bring with him our resurrection bodies. And we will no longer live in this body that gets old and sick and dies. Instead, we will live in a resurrection body that is like the Lord's own. We read it in the book of Romans. That's what it tells us. We celebrate a death like his, and we get to experience a resurrection life like his. And when we have the resurrection body, and when the new earth and the new heaven is constituted, we will live a very physical, free, fun life. Let's show this world a preview of coming attractions by living the most winsome, most beautiful, most fun life that we can right now as we live for him by commemorating Christ's death, by celebrating the freedom of the spirit, and by anticipating the return of the king. If these are the things that you commit yourself to, stand up. But don't stand up if within 40 days you're just gonna turn around and run back to idolatry. If these are the things that you will commit yourselves Stand up with me today. And as one voice, as one church, we will say, these are the things we will do for you, O Lord. I want you to pray with me and stand with me if this is your decision. And then I want you to sing the song. And if you have a decision you need to make to me, if you want to come for prayer or talk to me about something, I'll be down front and I'd love to talk with you. And if there's anybody in this room who has not experienced the watery grave of baptism, the water's warm. It's never too late. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we call upon your perfect triune name, thanking you for the story of the birth of the nation of Israel and the story of the birth of the church. We see the parallels and we apply them to our lives. May we be a people set apart, holy and devoted to you. For God, we love you, but don't you dare just take our word for it. See it in our actions. This we pray in your perfect name. Amen.